Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. We are in session 13 of our look at the book of Revelation. But as always, before we dive into this book of books, we want to open up with a word of prayer. So as we bow our hearts together, Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne of grace, we ask that you would impart upon us a spirit of understanding that when we look into what John has penned for us, what, what you have given so that we might be trained so that we might be discipled in what is to come. Lord, may we um, use this information to both garner hope for ourselves and to pass on that hope to others. Reveal to us now the truths of your Son as we seek to be more and more conformed to His image. So join with us here as we bow our hearts before you and as we commit this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. Use this time to build your kingdom within us. In the matchless name of Christ we pray, amen. So, Revelation. One of the things that I do hope that you're getting from this session, from these uh, classes, if you will, is that the Word of God is a gift. We don't often think of it that way. We, we don't often think of a textbook as being a present given to us out of love, but in this case it is. And as we take a look through the more mysterious side of the book, the symbolic as well as the prophetic, all of it was pinned for our good. All of it is pinned with purpose. There is not one drop of ink wasted in the Word of God. And rather than having you all... Um, conform to the way that I think things are done. I want to set up within your minds a sense of awe and wonder for the lengths that God went to to give us His precious Word here. And while I will explain to you why I believe what I believe, I want you to do your own homework. I want you to have your own copy of God's Word, your own set of commentaries, I want you to ask questions. I want you to be curious. I don't want you to take what I say for granted. That's what this verse here is all about. I want you to, to be curious so that whenever you ask things, whenever you dive into the Word of God, things are answered to your satisfaction, to further advance your faith, and to deepen your hope in what is to come. And that's what uh, Paul is this, the point that Luke is getting across here in Acts 17.11, that while these new Christians accepted the gospel with openness of heart, nevertheless, they searched the Scriptures for themselves to validate what was being preached to them through the Apostle Paul. So, Apocalypsis is, is the book of Revelation, singular. Not Revelations. And the section that we're in right now is the latter part, of the outline that Jesus gives to us. Jesus is telling us what will take place 
after these things, meditata, after the seven churches, after the church age. And he gives us this promise that anyone who reads and who listens, who studies, in other words, this book of prophecy, not this book of allegory, not this book of symbolism, merely not this book of... Uh, this book of prophecy, because the time is near. And, and I want you to, to take for granted that John penned this in earnest expectation of Christ's personal return. But before we get into that, last week I challenged you to take a look at the work, at the, at the written work of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 32. Incidentally, whenever you see this particular background on our slides, that's going to be an indicator that there is a long passage of Scripture that we need to go over before we can understand what is to come in the book of Revelation. We're actually going to see that quite a bit in this study. But I want you to take heart because the, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, meaning what we're about to study in Revelation, the background for it, what John realizes is about to happen is being set up through the pen of the prophet here so that we can see that the Old Testament is revealed later on. So, uh, Jeremiah is being commanded by God in this passage. Again, we're in Jeremiah chapter 32, starting with verse 6. The prophet replies, The word of the Lord came to me. Watch, Hanamel, the son of your uncle Shalom is coming to you to say, Buy my field in Anathoth for yourself, for you own the right of redemption to buy it. One of the things that we need to remember is that the families within the kingdom of Israel were important. In the book of Joshua, the land of Israel, the promised land, was divided family by family. And when somebody passed away, the portion of the land that was allotted to their family always had to remain in that family. You could not sell your family lands. If you didn't need it at the time or wanted extra money, you could lease it off for a period of time, but you could not outright sell it. If it was to go to anybody's possession, it had to be a member of that direct family. So what God is basically saying is that uh, the, one of the, the direct line relatives of Jeremiah is wanting to get rid of this piece of property. So Jeremiah is the next in line to receive it, to pay the redemptive price. Then as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to the guard's courtyard and urged me, please buy my field in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin for your own, the right of inheritance and redemption. For you own the right of inheritance and redemption. You're going to hear this word a lot coming up. You are the go-well for the family. You are the next of kin. You have the right of redemption. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Because the future had come to pass. So I bought the field in Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel. And I weighed out the silver to him, 17 shekels of silver. I recorded it on a scroll, sealed it, called in the witnesses, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the purchase agreement, the sealed copy with its terms and conditions, and the open copy. What We're going to explain this in just a little bit. So what he's saying is, 
This scroll is not just a contract for purchase. This is a title deed. It had to be witnessed and it had to be sealed. Gave the purchase agreement to Baruch, son of Nira, son of Mahesa. I did this in the sight of my cousin Hanamel, the witness who had signed the purchase agreement, and all the Judeans sitting in the guard's courtyard. I charged Baruch in, in their sight. This is what the Lord of angel armies, the God of Israel, says. Take these scrolls, this purchase agreement with the sealed copy and this open copy, and put them in an earthen storage jar that, so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be brought in this land. So Jeremiah is a confused prophet because he knows that the exile is coming. He knows that the Babylonian armies are on their way. So he's confused for the most part as to why on earth God would have him purchase land knowing that the land would then be stolen from him. And we now see that, that God is, is actually promising a promise of hope to the prophet that the land that is to be lost to Babylon will once again come unto your family. It will be redeemed even though it's in rebellion against God. Pay attention to those words. Even though the city of man, the city of the fallen, being Babylon, will conquer the land of promise, God will redeem the land of promise back to the family of God. That's the prophetic message that Jeremiah is being, is being set up within his book. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be brought to this land. After I have given the purchase agreement to Baruch, son of Nira, I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. You show faithful love to thousands, but lay the father's iniquity on their son's laps after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of armies, the one great in counsel and power and in action, your eyes are on all the ways of your children, of the children of men, in order to reward each person according to their ways and the result of his actions. You perform signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and still do today both in the land and among all mankind. You made a name for yourself, as is the case today. You brought your people out of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with a great terror. You gave them this land. You swore to give their ancestors a land flowing with milk and honey. They entered to possess it, but they did not obey your, uh, you or live according to your instructions. They failed to perform all you commanded them to do, and so you have brought all this disaster on them. So the prophet, in putting together this hymn of this hymn, this this uh, this psalm to God, is laying out his question by putting the case to God. You've done all these things. You've showed Israel all this love, and I agree. I admit I am witness to the fact that the people of Israel have turned their back on you. So he finally poses the question. Look, siege ramps have come against the city to capture it. And the city, as a result of the sword, famine, and plague, has been handed over to the Chaldeans. In other words, the armies of Babylon, that's their, uh, that's, that's their racial lineage name, who are fighting against it. What you have spoken has happened. Look, you can see it. 
Yet you, Lord, have said to me, purchase a field and call in the witnesses, even though the city has been handed over to the Chaldeans. Notice that witnesses is plural. According to legal terms, if you've sat with me through the Torah, it always requires at least two for something to be legal. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So now Jeremiah is asking the question, why have me buy this land if you're just going to send Babylon into it like a wrecking ball? And God replies, look, I am the Lord, the God over every creature. Is anything too difficult for me? This was a promise to Israel that those families would return to the promised land. And that's a foreshadowing of what is being set up in the book of Revelation as this earth that is in rebellion, this earth that has been overtaken by the enemy is promised that one day it will be reclaimed by its family, the family of God. Just to explain scrolls to you for a little bit, because we, when, in some of your translations, uh, the, the word here used in chapter 5 is book. And when we think of a book, we think of something like uh, your, the Bible that you probably have out at your desk right now. What in the second century would be called a codex. That's a bunch of leaf pages that are sewn together, bounded together, usually with thread, or in, in our case, in modern times, a very strong glue. What they are talking about here is a scroll, a literal scroll, and it starts with papyrus, which is a rush that grows about 15 feet high and 6 feet underwater. It is a water reed. Its pith is harvested and then thatched one side crossways, and then that's moistened. Two layers are glued together, one layer whose grain is growing horizontally, and the back, whose grain is growing, going vertically. One side rough, the other side smooth. The side that you can ride on, the side where the grain, you, you write with the grain, where the grains are going vertically, or horizontally, excuse me, is called the recto. The exterior is called the verso. And it's usually not written on because it's harder to write on it, except in one case. And that's something called an epistograph. That, is, that means whenever you see a scroll with writing on the back of it, writing on the outside of it, that means that whatever document you're holding is a legal transaction. It's a legal instruction like a will or a title deed. And on the back of it, on the outside of it, what is written on the outside are instructions on who was actually entitled to take possession of the scroll and read the contents of it. In the case of Jeremiah, chances are good that his family lineage had been pinned on the outside of the scroll with the instructions to be opened by my heir so that they could do the research to figure out now who was properly entitled to the contents of the scroll and what it described. Multiple seals were often used to secure the contents of legal documents. Case in point, the wills of, of uh, emperors Augustus and Vespasian had multiple seals. In some of, my, uh, some of my commentaries, seven to be precise. Does that sound familiar? So, 
what's going on in this passage is that God has commanded the purchase of family land so that it can be later redeemed. A record was established so that, this, so that the appropriate property would stick with the family that God had ordained would receive it all the way back in the book of Joshua. What's amazing about the God that we serve, unlike uh, the God of Ibrahim, Yitzhak, and Jacob, uh, rather than the God of, say, the God who's described as Allah. You can also say this about Zeus, the other pantheons that exist. The other gods that have ever walked, or have, have, have ever been, excuse me, all other gods from all other religions have this in common. They are capricious. Through their will, they can break their own promises. Only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob delights in not only the making, but the keeping of promises to his children. He is righteous, meaning that if he says it's going to be done, then it will be done. The books are always balanced with God, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But this is God maintaining his promise through the pen of his prophet and his family. Jeroboam knew that Babylon was about to steamroll into the land and that it would be occupied for 70 years. But this, this promise effectively that God is making to the prophet is that the people of God would return and that the occupation would not be permanent. So the document established airship and title to the land. It, made, it was made legitimate and legally binding by the, signature, uh, by, the, by the witnessing of two other individuals. It was sealed. It could only be opened by the person described on the outside of the scroll, the epistograph. Only by the appointed time and by the legitimate heir. This is what is going on in the mind of the Apostle John when he sees the scene that is set up for us in Revelation Chapter 5, please turn there right now in your copy of God's Word. As we take a look at what is effectively the title deed to the universe itself. Revelation chapter 5, the scroll of the seven seals. Verse 1, John pins for us, Then I saw in the right hand, excuse me, Then I saw in the right hand of one seated, of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. So already, excuse me, already, John understands this. This is his culture. We don't often get that. But this is what's going through his mind. This is a deed. This is a title document. This is a promise of some future hope that the person sitting on the throne that God himself has in his hands. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? But no one in heaven nor on earth nor under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look on it. I wept. And wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look to it. So there was a search done of all the kinsmen here. It had to be a kinsman of Adam. It had to be a human person. It could not be an angel. 
it had to be someone made in God's image that was a direct heir of God. And all this time, they're doing a, a search of the books are open. And they're trying to find the person that the scroll describes, the exterior of the scroll describes, as being able to open it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Incidentally, the word in the Greek there means convulsively weep. Not just he was sorrowful, not just he was shedding a tear, but he was horrified because he knew what this document represents, the hope that it represents. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. I want you to underline that word in, that, that phrase in your copy of God's word. Why? Because not only was Jesus of Nazareth a descendant of David, he was the one that created David in the first place. And that paradox plays out both, both here and in the Psalms. So Jesus is identified not just as the heir of David, but the root of David, the origin of David, the God of David. The root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb, or the lamb as it had been slain, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set into all the earth. And again, this is a description of the ministry of Christ. We'll get into this in a second, but this is not merely... The appearance that John is seeing, but this, also, this is also an image of a, of a prophetic truth. He went, the Lamb that is, and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, paying homage to the Lamb. Angels cannot worship just anybody. Angels can only worship who? God. So for those that claim that Jesus is not God, that makes this scene kind of awkward. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It's another image that when God breathes in, He breathes in your prayers. Your prayers become part of Him. In come the prayers and out, become, and out comes the Word. God breathed. And they sang this new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased the people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. So there is no division. There is no disconnect. There is no prejudice held by God. No matter where you come from, no matter what you have done, no matter... What your demographics are is we have a bad habit of, of putting together in this day and time. You are all worthy to be in the presence of God if you have been, if you have accepted the redemption that is offered freely to you. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless, thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was uh, slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, in other words, let everything that has breath praise the Lord literally come to pass. Blessing and honor, glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this evening. If you remember from our study of Torah, which this, the, study, the Torah study was basically built as a lead into what we're in now. So if you sat with me through that, you'll remember this curious episode in the book of Leviticus where there was a, a representative of the, of the family referred to as the Goel. It could be termed as the Avenger or the Redeemer. But he was always a kinsman of the person or the, the uh, he was always a direct lineage um, relative, either to be the avenger of blood or to be the redeemer of the land. This person who is the next of kin in our parlance was responsible for seeking justice for someone who had been murdered within a family and for the investigation, for seeking out justice. And he was also responsible for ensuring that property that had gone fallow for whatever reason, either because of the death of a relative, because of a military intervention outside of Israel, whatever the case may be, that that property had been returned and redeemed to its family of origin. So I want you to, in your notes, if you've printed them off from HighlandBaptistChurch.org, I want you to notice that the Goel is an earthly reflection of a heavenly truth. The, the kinsman redeemer is responsible for seeking justice for the family and ensuring the redemption of the family's land. Again, this is an earthly reflection of a heavenly reality. The legal qualifications for him to be able to do this are that he had to be a direct next of kin. The person had to be willing to assume the responsibility. In other words, unencumbered by another responsibility that conflicted with it. And they had to be capable of ensuring that what they were tasked to was performed. In other words, that the family's property would be cared for, or that the person who had caused the injury to the family by killing one of them was brought to justice. Now, this is an associated uh, redemptive part of God's law, closely connected to it and typified by the book of Ruth. If a husband dies prior to having a male heir for the family to continue, the oldest brother has to marry the widow of the departed. Now, again, this is, this is the culture of ancient Israel. So please don't try to read an Eastern text with Western eyes because the family name is important. The family name is vital because, again, it's an earthly reflection of a heavenly reality. The, the Leverite, uh, supposed Leverite, offers the widow his resources and protection, which was vital in this culture. And from that marriage, they raise a son in the name of the deceased so that their family lineage will, will continue. 
And they also are capable of redeeming the family's land for their children in case the land went fallow. This is the whole crux of the book of Ruth, which we'll actually get into a little bit more in depth in the next section. For those of you that know the story of Ruth, Boaz acts as both, acts as both a Goel and a Leverite, even though uh, the person that had died was not uh, Boaz's brother, he was a near kinsman, so he was able to both take care of Ruth, to have a family with her, and to redeem the land for Naomi, to keep the family of her dead son alive. So this is, again, earthly shadow of a heavenly reality. By faith, and I want you to mark this down in your notes, by faith and by marriage as well, a Gentile bride was grafted into both the faith and the family of God. That is the crux, the central point of Ruth. What is the central point of the, of the book of Revelation? The Gentile bride is who? It's us. It's the church. By a combination of faith and marriage, and we'll talk about the marriage a bit when we get on into the, 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 uh, the harpazo, um, teaching later on, we are not only, uh, we are grafted into the lineage of David. We are part of the family of God by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Gift that we celebrate every time we come to the table in communion. So when John is seeing the scroll, what he is seeing is the potential redemption of Israel. He is seeing God's promise fulfilled. He is seeing the kingdom of this world come back into complete fellowship with God, the same God that created it. And he is seeing the direct fulfillment of the promise that is the Messiah, which is the day of the Lord. <clears throat> if you'll remember, when Jesus comes to the synagogue, he quotes from Isaiah 61, which we're going to read here in just a second, uh, where he, Isaiah 61, if you have a chance, read through the whole chapter, because this is basically the entire messianic promise in brief. But Jesus only reads up to a comma. His first coming is fulfilled up to that comma. But it continues. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma. And this is what Revelation then fulfills. And the day of our God's what? Vengeance. To comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, splendid clothes instead of despair. In other words, for the believers of God, they will become inheritors of the kingdom and they will, they will be called righteous trees planted by God to glorify Him. That's what we're seeing before the throne of grace in this scene. Revelation chapter 5. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations as we're about to to talk about the coming of a, of a third temple, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will, uh, will stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners 
will be your plowmen and your vine dressers. This will not be a kingdom that is just harbored by Israelites. This will be a nation of nations. You will be called the Lord's what? The Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers to our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations. You will boast in their riches. This is the promise of the future kingdom. In a place, in place of your shame, you will have a double portion. In place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. So they will possess double in their land. An eternal joy will be theirs. Now remember, when a prophet writes something, more often than not, they write to an immediate audience, but there is an eternal echo of the truth that they're proclaiming. This may have been to the immediate, the promise of hope after Babylon, but for those of us echoing through time in the trajectory of the future, we see that it goes from being a promise to a nation, to the promise of a kingdom built out of nations. So this is the fulfillment of the Messianic promise. This is also an end of sin and an end to the will of the enemy. This is the fulfillment of salvation and the restoration of the kingdom of God. Is it any wonder that John convulsed with grief when he saw the scroll with all of these things in his mind? And, and, and heard voices proclaim, there is no one worthy. We cannot find anyone worthy. John is thinking to himself more than likely, is this going to come to pass where there is no redemption, where there is no kinsman redeemer, where no one is found who can open the scroll, where no one can claim the land that was lost? Is any wonder he was convulsive with grief until someone told him, there is the Lamb of God. We'll talk about the Lamb uh, now because the Lamb is a unique title that, only, that begins to appear in the book of Revelation at this point. Of all the titles that Jesus uses for himself, it doesn't appear in chapters 2 and 3 when he's addressing the seven churches. Yet Jesus himself was identified in this capacity as sacrifice by John the Baptist himself in John 1.29, where, where, where John, the forerunner of Christ, declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he has the attributes of the Lamb in his first coming when we see the Lamb as he had been slain. But we also hear him referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion, the lamb had come, the lion will return. The way that he is described, again, the spiritual truths used in the description, seven horns. Seven is, is emblematic of being a completed set. Horns are symbolic of power and honor. And the, uh, the references for horns being a source of power are there in the first line, honor in the second and third. So the seven horns, meaning all power, the complete power, all power, <coughs> and all honor are reserved for the Lamb. 
Seven eyes, meaning the seven spirits of the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit of God, meaning that all he is all-seeing and all-knowing and that nothing, by the fact that they are eyes, nothing is hidden from them. Again, he was promised the throne of, De- of, of Israel through David's line by the, by the angel Gabriel himself in Luke chapter 1. And that from time immemorial that he would reign over the entire earth, that his kingdom would have no end. So we're not just talking about the day of the Lord is not merely about the kingdom of Israel. The day of the Lord is about the world itself, about the universe with universal implications. All of the natural world coming back into fellowship with its creator. And just by way of quick review, um, here is a, a series of patterns involving numbers that you might want to keep in your notes. One, of course, um, usually having the biblical meaning of union. Not so much that you only have one singular thing. More often than not, you see that we have become one. Three, perfection and fellowship. Two is a non-perfect fellowship. In the case of marriage, two is an incomplete Three is complete because it's the husband, the wife, and God. Holy matrimony. That's something that we don't often think of. But God has to be in the midst of a marriage before it can work. Spirituality is important. Of course, the number six represents the imperfect or the fallen, that which is incomplete. Seven means a completed set meaning that is whole or holy, not requiring anything. The number 10, which we may see coming up later on, usually represents order in creation, order as in logic. It can also uh, represent responsibility because a tithe, as in what you bring to the storehouse or the church for the sake of supporting its ministry, is how much? 10%, the responsible Uh, the responsible duty of a Christian, not only the tithing of money, but the tithing of time, the tithing of talents, giving of yourselves to benefit a greater whole. And the seven possessions of worthiness that we hear in the song of the angels and the song of the, uh, of the, the elders, all power, meaning that if God desires to do a thing, he is fully capable of doing that thing. Nothing as we read in, the, in, in Jeremiah, nothing is too difficult for God. All riches, meaning that, he, that the entire universe is his property and everything within it, including us. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. <clears throat> all wisdom, meaning that God is perfect in all ordered thought. All strength, meaning that he is the conquering king of kings, that nothing is outside of his control, and that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. All honor, and that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the the, the glory of God the Father. All glory, meaning that all worship is due to him and him alone. And all blessing meaning that the treasures of heaven which encompass everything is his to give out as he wills.
Let's talk about how they identify Jesus as being worthy. Because the hallmark, strangely enough, would sound to most readers' ears like Jesus was defeated, thus he is made worthy, which makes no sense. This is one of the reasons that I believe that you have to be a born-again believer before you can understand the Word of God. So to walk through this step by step, he was worthy not because he was uh, defeated on the cross, because he wasn't defeated on the cross. The cross was not a defeat, it was an achievement. I'll explain that here. God is holy, meaning God needs for nothing. God is complete. God is perfect. God is the unknowable made by His will knowable. God wants for nothing. God needs for... Well, God has a will. But God does not have anything that He absolutely requires. God is holy. But God is also righteous, meaning that He is just in all things. What we don't often get is that sin is not merely someone's mistake. Sin, as defined, as I'm sure you've heard me say several times, sin is an act of rebellion against the will of God. God who is sovereign. And every time that an act of rebellion against God is committed willfully by one of His creations, it is registered the same way as a crime was registered in Old Testament times. It is registered as a debt. All through this culture and even into Greco-Roman culture, even the Egyptian culture, a crime was registered as a debt. The books, in other words, were accounting books. And when you committed a sin, no matter what sin it was, if you had committed anything against the Ten Commandments, for instance, then you had read in your ledger, you owed a debt, and the debt for sin is always life. A debt for sin is always life. It's always a capital punishment. And that's where we come in, unfortunately. Because we are fallible, because we are finite, because we are fickle, changing our minds to and fro. Because we are, once we reach the age of accountability, once we falter, we immediately falter. We have the sin nature within us, which means that we can do no right in the sight of God because we are recipients, unfortunately, of Adam's sin. And once we sin, we cannot make up for it on our own. You cannot balance the scales because there are no scales to balance. There is a stain upon you that cannot be washed away on your own merit. You cannot make up for anything because, again, the cost for sin is your eternal soul. It is your life. You cannot build anything. You cannot do anything. You cannot give anything that is equal to your soul. It cannot be done. You cannot work yourself out of this debt. But God realizing this in his, out of His own love for us, being made in His image, being considered His children, the books 
because God is righteous, he could not simply erase the books. He could not emotionally forgive. We as human beings can emotionally forgive, meaning that we look over something. We, the, the trick is we still remember it. Human forgiveness means that, yes, we emotionally look over something. We no longer stand in, in, in anger over something or in bitterness over something. But nevertheless, unless we suffer uh, from a disease or really bad uh, memories, we always hold that episode in our minds. Not so with the grace of God. The, the righteousness of God demands that the debt be paid the reckoning comes due. The bill comes due. But in God's grace, he himself formulated a plan so that a rescue could be mounted. A substitute had to be paid. And there's a lot of people that, that don't like substitutionary atonement, and I have no idea why. The only thing that I can think of is that they're trying to take salvation and turn it and humanize it. That if I can forgive without having somebody uh, kill one of their pets, then surely God can do it. That's not the case. The books have to be balanced. The debt has to be paid. And it's a payment that we cannot make. I cannot provide the payment for my own salvation. But thanks to the grace of God, he first opened up one covenant whereby the worshipers would come with an animal, with a being, in other words, that was not capable of sin because they were not capable of the knowledge of good or evil. And symbolically, the person's sin was imbued to that animal and the animal's blood was shed. For the life is in the Blood. All throughout the Old Testament, you hear that phrase. God keeps an accounting of every drop of blood from every creature. Life is in the blood. To this day, this is why it's not kosher to eat anything that has blood still in it. As later explained in the book of Hebrews, for without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And this stayed sin for a while. This stayed the wrath of God for a while. But a second covenant, a new type of sacrifice had to be made to bring us into close, personal, intimate communion with God, which was His desire from the very beginning. The only life that could truly be substituted for a human being to pull them out of the debt of sin was another human life. In order for that life to be acceptable, that life had to be sinless. So the only way the price could be paid was if a sinless person gave their life in the place of someone who was sinful. The Bible only declares one person to be it. And that person also happened to be God. So God robed in flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, both the descendant of David and his God, Paid that price on our behalf. So we've talked about the holiness of God. We've talked about the righteousness of God. We've followed, talked about the fallenness of man. We've talked about the grace of God. We've talked about the substitutionary atonement. And now the propitiation of God's wrath. Meaning 
that because Jesus was perfect, because He was sinless, because He voluntarily gave His life for us, the debt was paid. To tell us die, paid in full. The wrath of God that was generated by all that sin from all those countless generations was satisfied and the books were set to balance. And finally, we're talking about the culmination of salvation. In his hand now, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, is identified by John the Baptist. That scroll is the title deed to the universe. The redemption of the land that is the world itself. And all the people, the family of God who dwells within it. We're going to talk about how this salvation comes to pass, how it will last for eternity. But before we do that, there's a couple of of background studies that we're going to do really quickly over the course of the next few weeks. For our next session, I want you to read over the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters. It's a very light read, and it's one of the most romantic stories in the Bible. It can be read in one sitting, and just as so many things about the Bible, it, it, it's, it's shallow enough for a child to wade into, deep enough to drown an elephant. But read over the book of Ruth. I want you to think about your impressions of Boaz. What is he like? What is his attitude? How does he act? How is he dealing with Ruth, and how is he dealing with all the people surrounding And while you're at it, I want you to give it a second look once you journal your impressions of Boaz. And if you have time, give it a second reading. And in place of Boaz, I want you to think of Jesus himself. I want you to think of Boaz as a forerunner for Jesus. And I want you to think of Ruth, the Gentile bride, as an image of the church. Someone who was trapped, who was, who came, who, the Gentile of a different culture, a different way of thinking, a culture that had human sacrifice as part of its makeup, on top of a great deal of other things. A child of Moab coming into and becoming part of the family of God. Read it the second time where Jesus is in the place of Boaz with what you know about him and the church in the place of Ruth. I think that you'll find it's, it's an interesting study to look at it that way. Journal your thoughts and feelings and please continue to share them with your groups. Please maintain those fellowships because this is important for us to truly understand what's going on in this book. Over the course of the next few sessions, next session we're going to t- take a look at, at Christ as the kinsman redeemer how Christ's mission as the Messiah is fulfilled. And using the book of Ruth is kind of like the cultural explainer. Ruth is going to be our commentary for this section of Revelation. The session after that, we're going to take a look at the rapture as it is described in the Bible. I will do my best to let the Bible speak on this issue. And I know that there are some of us that are... um, have interesting views of this. I want to stick... Purely with what the Bible tells us.
not what the common, not necessarily what the commentaries allude to, not what other people have said, not what certainly nothing about what other so-called modern-day prophets have said about it. Let's focus on what the Bible tells us about the, about what is called the harpazo in Greek, the rapture. Sunday after that, we're going to take a look at the 70 weeks of Daniel and how they mirror what's going to happen with the opening of the seven seals. That will be the two following weeks. And after that, we'll get back to Revelation chapter 6. But this, this sets up, this, this basically is the commentary for what we'll, we're about to read. And unless you know this, the book of Revelation will remain a confusing enigma because so much of what's going on in the book of Revelation, as I hope you've seen in this study this evening and the one from last Wednesday, so much of the book of Revelation takes for granted that you know the Old Testament. So over the next four Sundays at least, or excuse me, four Wednesday afternoons, we're going to be taking a look at the background building to Revelation chapter 6. Any questions or comments? If not, let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to share your word. May it continue to nourish us. And Lord, I offer you a prayer of thanksgiving for those of this community of faith, Lord, who have offered their prayers, their gifts, and their time for the sake of this ministry and as being a help to me personally. May they taste sweetly the fruits of their labor. May they see souls come to you before it is everlastingly too late. May they richly embrace you as the source of their hope, as the lover of their souls. It's, as always, in the matchless name of Jesus, our coming King, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.